Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. On Seasoned, we usually talk about food and where it comes from and shine a light on chefs and farmers you should know about. This hour is a little different. We're going to talk about our relationship to food. This time of year, people think a lot about food resolutions and that diet that's going to start on January 1st. But you might want to pause whatever narrative about diets and weight you've got playing on repeat. Our guests today know so much about diet culture, weight stigma, and how the number you see on the scale is not reflective of overall health. Our guests are Yuna Jada and Dr. Edward Phillips. Yuna graduated from Harvard with a degree in cognitive neuroscience, and Eddie is an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. He's also the founder and director of the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston. Together, they host the Food We Need to Talk podcast, and they are the authors of Food We Need to Talk, the science-based, humor-laced, last word on eating, diet, and making peace with your body. Producer Catrice Claudio spoke with Yuna and Eddie about how they simplify concepts around health and fitness in a culture obsessed with weight loss, diet fads, and so-called wellness. All right. Well, Yuna and Eddie, welcome to Seasoned. Oh, thank, thank you, you for so having much. us. Oh, it's going to be a great conversation. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I'm not much of a food science nerd, even though food is my jam. And yo, mm-hmm. you both have changed my understanding of how to look at food through a science lens and made it fun and digestible. So thank you. Oh, thank you. So as someone who has heard it all, science tells us that dieting doesn't work, yet fad diets persist and we all get caught up in the weight loss marketing. How do we get here? <laughs> Can you share a little bit about the history of dieting? Yeah. So dieting, I was shocked to find out, actually goes back to men. Um, I think we think of dieting as having this massive impact on women today, right? Because we see so many more um, higher rates of eating disorders and also just higher rates of body dysmorphia among women today than we do among men. However, if you look far enough back in the 1800s, it actually started off as a male thing. Back, back, back in the day, it used to be seen as a sign of wealth to be overweight. And that kind of started to shift around the mid 1800s. And we started to see men to begin to diet. And it was thought to be this like masculine thing, this way of showing your self-control and your discipline to uh, basically keep your body at a lower weight. And then we started to see this crossover into women in the late, late, late 1800s, a beginning of 1900s, when basically women's rights activists were like, guys, we can be just as disciplined as men. We should also diet to show that like, yeah, we have control over our bodies as well. And so it started off as this really like equality with men sort of thing. And then it kind of spiraled out of control, I would say, throughout the 1900s, because basically the ideal female figure just became thinner and thinner and thinner, um, more and more unattainable. And then we also had these other racial and socioeconomic factors start to play into what bodies looks like. And that actually interests me because according to author and sociologist Sabrina Strings, diet culture does have deep roots in, in racism and white supremacy. What can you tell us about that? 
So we know that in the early 1920s, there started to be this shift from dieting just being a thing for overall women to being associated with middle and upper class white women. And we know that immigrant bodies and darker bodies were really demonized for the way they looked. And the way that different cultures treat body shape also varies, right? So we know that in more white cultures, like thinner bodies tend to be more revered. And then in other cultures, like curvier bodies tend to be more revered. And so we started to see this idea, these caricatures of darker bodies and immigrant bodies being associated with um, porn, being associated with sex, and also being associated with being kind of like unkempt, undisciplined, uncontrollable. And so all these sort of stereotypes of the way immigrants were thought of and people of color were thought of also were tied into body shape. Your book also tends to talk about the manipulation of information to get people to fall into these trends. But also, this manipulation has also benefited special interests like the pharmaceutical industry, right? (laughs) Um, As a doctor and professor, Eddie, you come across plenty of, I'm putting air quotes, science-backed misinformation about the body's response to food and exercise. Can you talk more about this? Sure. One of the things that we try to get across or I try to understand when I'm knee to knee with my patients is that this whole thing, meaning this whole thing like what to eat, when to eat, how much to eat, you know, how to look, should not be that complicated. Once you understand some basics about how your metabolism works, and that sounds a little boring, but you kind of need to know what it means to take in energy and how much you spend. And that's through exercise, through walking around, through lifting weights, that it should not be that complicated. And yet there's this massive food industry and a lot of it, and most of the calories in the United States are consumed as ultra processed foods. That's the jargon for what most of us would call junk foods, something produced in a plant. And those are not universally, but you know, created by large corporations that are putting the foods into packages and then manipulating the food so that it becomes addictive. And we love talking about that you can't eat just one, which was an old potato chip ad. And in fact, you can't. So finding some, quote, science to support something or just manipulating what's going on is unfortunately really easy. So (laughs) for instance, lately, or maybe the last 10, 15 years, you know, gluten has been demonized. So you could find a can of soda you know, filled with sugar that will say gluten-free as if it's a health food. And, you know, well-meaning people go like, oh, like I could have a 7-Up that's gluten-free. It must be okay for me. (laughs) You know, we did the same thing with fats over from the pretty much the 80s until, I don't know if it's still going, it is still going on where we want to reduce fat. But uh, so it's like low fat, everything. But, you know, what you're not reading on the label or it's not on the front of the box is that, yeah, we took out the fat and we put in tons of sugar. And that's arguably contributed greatly to the obesity crisis. So it's kind of a misuse of of science and it's just all made too confusing. I know my introduction to health at all, any capacity, was going to the doctor. I was 12 years old. I was aware that I was considered too big and out of shape because doctors were telling me, they were showing me charts saying, you're this tall, you weigh this much, you're obese. Now I'm 12 years old, I feel healthy, and I got this message immediately that my bigger body was like a horrible thing that needed to change and I have to do differently, but there was no 
more information outside of fix the fat, right? Um, can we talk more about the psychology of weight stigma and how shame impacts our lifestyle choices? Catrice, you, you are dancing on that narrow edge. I confront this on a daily basis, talking to patients, but then also trying to teach other doctors and, and nurses and psychologists and everyone how to talk to them. You're dancing on that narrow edge of we need to tell people if there is science that says that you know being lighter and not being obese is healthier. However, at the same token, weight stigma is arguably worse than the weight. And, you know, to put someone into either an eating disorder or self-loathing or, you know, just more confusion and chasing after something because you were told that your body, you know, was too big for you, you know, is worse than the weight. So, you know, what are we to do? And Yuna will give you that answer. (laughs) Way to go to let me, let me do the hard part. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, Catrice, I think that's such a like universal experience for anybody who's ever gone to the doctor and um, been told that. We have this idea in our society that we can shame people into eating better or exercising. And I think it's really promoted by certain people in the media or even just I think it's like a really deep, pervasive thing in our society to think that like fat people are lazy. Fat people just eat junk all day. They're just so greedy. They have no willpower. And If it's not obvious that, you know, the majority of Americans are overweight or obese, it's not because the majority of people are lazy and have zero willpower and don't try at all. And like, it's all their fault. So we know there are so many other reasons why people have a higher weight that's beyond just their behaviors and making someone feel bad about their body does not make them eat better. It actually makes them eat worse. It makes them not want to go to the gym. It makes them feel like people are judging them in places where exercise is like the reason that they're there. And so I feel like my parents were always kind of pointing out my weight because I had two very skinny sisters and I was never overweight growing up, but I was bigger than my sisters. And so they were always saying like your stomach, you should exercise, you shouldn't eat this. And so I think that was like one of the big things that contributed to my binge eating was I was like, okay, if you're going to call me fat and say that like I'm too big, then I'm going to make myself even bigger. And that's kind of how it started. So we do see this in research, like in studies that people will eat more after being stigmatized for their weight. And we see that the effects of weight stigma are so far reaching in society. So when you look at other biases, like biases towards queer people, even racial biases, they are decreasing as time has gone on. The past 30 years, they have been getting better. Weight stigma has actually been getting worse. So our feelings about fat people have been deteriorating over the past few decades, along with our feeling towards older people. So ageism and stigma against weight have both been getting worse over the past few decades. And considering that it's two thirds of the U.S. population, I think it's something that we really need to address and we need to kind of dissociate our health behaviors from our weight because you can improve your health behaviors and your weight might not change at all. And to most of us, that feels like a failure. And the fact is you are vastly improving your health by just eating better and moving regardless of what happens to your weight. So I really feel like we need to dissociate weight and health and not always starve ourselves and over-exercise just in an attempt to change our weight because the reality is those behaviors are not sustainable and you're not going to be doing them for the rest of your life if that's going to be your end goal. 
my you said a word <laughs> i told you to answer <laughs> and it, it's so true because honestly people are emotional eaters and if they feel bad they're going to go and get some coping mechanisms in yes. their bellies, right so like it, and as yes. somebody who used to do it i totally get it and so how does how do terms like obese and obesity inform how we think about bodies and weight and how we treat people that we perceive under that umbrella so obesity is a medical term. Obesity is a disease. Obesity, you know, as a doctor looking at the science is is not the healthiest state. You know, back to what I said when I told you that you were on that fine, you know, dividing line between, you know, stigmatizing and also, you know, providing healthcare. So, you know, it's not good to be obese. Medically, our metabolisms are not as healthy. However, and I don't want people to be triggered by, you know, a discussion of losing weight, but losing even 5% of your body mass. So if you're 300 pounds and you want to lose, you know, 5%, you're, you're losing like 15 pounds and you could do the math. Um, and my patients kind of like say, oh, that's the easy weight. And yet that will have demonstrable improvements in your metabolic health. So it's not like we're not telling you to to lose weight, but like like Eunice said, the weight alone or the number on the scale is actually not a great indicator of your overall health. I mean, here's another kind of wonderful scenario in which I'm talking to a patient about you've been frustrated by yo-yo dieting, you know, hello, welcome to America. Your weight's gone down, your weight's gone up. What if we, you know, look at other health behaviors and we got you moving more and they actually go to the gym and they start lifting weights and there's a lovely science to lifting weights to lose weight. And my favorite story is when patients come back and they go like, doc, I haven't lost any weight. You know, like, quote, I failed, but I've lost my pants. You know, they put on some muscles and they and they lost some fat and the scale hasn't changed and yet they are uh, healthier despite the weight staying the same. And Catrice, I feel like the word obesity is just so, so tied to emotions for people. It just feels like such a failure to be qualified as obese or having obesity or whatever. And sometimes I think even calling it a disease to me, it like makes me feel so stigmatized, like, oh, there's something wrong with me. Like my weight will always fluctuate between the overweight and obese categories. Like I'm very muscular. I go to the gym a lot and I honestly eat pretty well. You know, I'm not gorging myself every day and my weight is always going to be in the obese category. And I remember when I saw that, I just felt like, oh my God, this is such a massive failure on my part. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm living a very healthy life. And so kind of dissociating that idea of obesity is like your personal failing is also, I think, really important for people to not feel this sense of like self-loathing towards themselves. Which actually is something I wanted to go deeper into with you about the importance of language and framing when we talk about exercise and our bodies. So I've always been under the impression if you work out more, you lose more weight. But I've also been told you cannot outwork a bad diet. And so we're yeah. always <laughs> we're always put into this tug of war between do we move more? Do we eat less? Do we overwork? Do we undereat? What is the best way to frame our attitudes and our understandings when it comes to, to exercise in our bodies? Just to support what you're uh, saying, Catrice, I've been and go to 
um, meetings where there are large numbers of folks who devote their life to physical activity and exercise. These are scientists and doctors and researchers, and they have the sugar-sweetened beverage in their hand, and they go, I run, therefore, it, everything is just fuel. It doesn't matter. And then I go to conferences where the ethos and the interest is all about nutrition, and it's sort of like I don't eat X, Y, and Z, I do eat A, B, and C, and therefore I'm healthy and I don't need to move. And I'm like, oh my God. So my, my <laughs> answer to this is that health is much larger and the approach that we use through lifestyle medicine, sort of my area of practice along with physical medicine and rehab, the first question I would ask if you were sitting across from me is, Catrice, what matters most to you? Not what's the matter with you, as I was taught in medical school, but what matters most to you? What do you want to do in this world? What does health mean to you? What activities do you want to do? Let's look at other things like <laughs> for so many people, not getting enough sleep is the thing that starts the problem because I don't know about you, but I could lose one night's sleep and the next day you can't get between me and the chocolate. For some people, it's all about stress. For many of us, improving our relationships and not being so lonely would make us feel better. That's what health is. And oh, and by the way, uh, my new friend Catrice and Yuna and I decided to go for a walk together. Well, that's good. And then we're going to do a little potluck and you're not going to bring garbage to a potluck. So we're going to, you know, so I would say let's, you know, widen this and look beyond even exercise and weight. And now for the full answer, Yuna Jata. Okay. <laughs> So when it comes to exercise and weight, all the research is very, very clear. Exercise is a terrible way to lose weight. And we see this in studies where they will divide people into just diet and then a diet and exercise group. And the diet and exercise group doesn't really lose more weight than just the people dieting. And we also know that your body, when you first start exercising, you burn a certain number of calories. And then as you keep exercising, your body adapts and you will burn less and less calories with that exercise. So even though we think there's this like exact science of like, oh, I burned 300 calories at this exercise session and I've gone this many times and therefore I should have lost X number of pounds. Even though all of that stuff is true, you still in the very beginning will lose only two thirds of the weight you're supposed to lose according to the calories you burn in exercise. And as time goes on, it's less and less and less. So we know that exercise is a terrible way to lose weight. However, and caveat, exercise is probably the most important thing that we can do that will like immediately impact our health. You can list every single disease and every single problem you have with your body. And there's probably a reason why exercise helps you with that health behavior or that disease. So it is such an important thing to do. And then we also know for maintaining weight loss, exercise is extremely important because once we've lost the weight, our metabolism has really taken a hit from becoming a smaller body. And so when you exercise and you're maintaining your muscle mass, your muscles are a huge way of maintaining your metabolism. So it's really, really important that when people lose weight, they keep exercising because that is what helps them to maintain a higher metabolism and not regain the weight. All that to say, diet is the number one thing that is going to drive weight loss. And your diet is impacted by so many things. I mean, we've seen with the new weight loss medications, right? People will effortlessly lose weight because it is affecting 
genes in their brain, the GLP-1 inhibitors, like that is affecting your gut and your brain. It is not affecting like the way you burn calories, right? And so just because it gives them a lower appetite, they're able to eat so much less. So we know there are all these other things that we don't even think about that impact our appetite more than just, um, you know, oh, I, I need to like count these calories. I need to look at these packages, whatever. And Eddie, I see you had some, some because you're, you're dropping bombs here. You're telling me exercise is a terrible way to lose weight and eating is the best way to lose it, but you got to work out. So it is one of those things where it is both and and not either or. Yes. And, and I'll just do a little, it's not quite a riddle. It's just an arithmetic problem. There's about 3,500 calories of energy in a pound of fat. It takes about 100 calories to walk a mile. So if you chose to walk five miles a day, that would be about 500 calories. And if you did that every day, that seven days a week, that'd be 3,500 calories. And then, uh, Catrice, you're doing this math in your head. You go, well, that's a pound. I'm going to lose a pound this week just walking five miles, which happens to be about 10,000 steps. If you did that for a year, you'd come back to me and go like, I did what you said, Doc. I should be 52 pounds lighter. But you only lose like five pounds if that's what you do. Why? You know, for some of us, you get a little hungry walking five miles. In our book, there's a wonderful section on metabolic adaptation. Your body is working really hard to allow you to do, walk those five miles, and it's sort of turning down other calorically hungry systems in your body as you sort of get more fit. So anyway, the point is, instead of losing 52 pounds, if you lose five pounds, you're probably ahead of the curve if all you do is that extra walking. You're listening to Catrice Claudio's conversation with Yuna Jada and Dr. Eddie Phillips. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. When we get back, Yuna and Eddie talk more about misconceptions around metabolism, the importance of weightlifting, and their personal experiences with disordered eating. The more I would diet, the worse the binges would get. The worse the binges would get, the more I would diet. And so this is the very common cycle we see with eating disorders. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon-Aiken. 
You've been listening to producer Catrice Claudio's conversation with Una Jada and Dr. Eddie Phillips. They are the hosts of the podcast and the authors of the book, Food We Need to Talk. We left off with Eddie describing the concept of metabolic adaptation. Our bodies are amazing. Without getting too sciencey, Catrice picks up with Yuna describing some of the common misconceptions about metabolism and why muscle and movement is so important. Yuna also shares more detail about her experience in college with bulimia and binge eating. So just a note that both Yuna and Eddie will be talking about disordered eating ahead. Metabolism is that girl in diet culture that nobody, like, <laughs> everybody loves to talk about, but nobody likes. And so yes. it's, it's either your greatest ally or your worst enemy in the battle of the bulge. And why yes. is there so much focus on metabolism? And should there be? People constantly use our metabolism as this, like, magical reason that explains everything. Like, when I was bigger than my sisters, when I was growing up, I was like, oh, my God, it's because I have a slower metabolism. It's what my parents told me, too. Like, you have our metabolism. It's slower than your sisters. Your sisters have a fast metabolism. And then, um, you know, when people are can't gain weight and they're, like, eating all this food and they're like, I don't understand. I can't gain weight. My metabolism is just so fast. Um, the reason that men struggle less with their weight than women, oh, my God, men must have a faster metabolism, blah, blah, blah. And so there's so much misunderstanding around metabolism. The fact is the largest portion of your metabolism is your basal metabolic rate. That's the calories your body burns just staying alive. That is the majority of your metabolism. And if you don't move a lot in your day, it is the vast majority. It's like 80% of your metabolism. You basically have no control over that because like you're going to breathe every day. Your heart is going to beat. Your cells are turning over except for your muscle mass. So the reason that we say in the book resistance training is so important is because your muscle mass is 60% of your BMR because muscle is very expensive tissue. It takes a lot of work to maintain it, especially if you're working out and breaking it down. Your body needs to repair it and then hopefully also grow more muscle if you're working out hard enough. And then the next largest portion that you actually have control over is your NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's all the calories you burn in your day just moving around. So like going on a walk, doing the dishes, stuff like that. And that stuff is like 90-ish percent of your metabolism. Even if you exercise every day, you do not burn that many calories exercising. And most of us also aren't exercising every day, right? Like if we're exercising two or three times a week, we're doing great. And so I think it's important to keep in mind that like the the two things we have to focus on are the muscle mass and the movement. And when we look at studies of does metabolism slow down as you age, the answer is it does not slow down in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s or your 50s. And we start to see a slight decline starting in your 60s. And so people, you know, listening are like, oh, my God, that can't be true. Like when I was in my 20s, it was so much easier for me to maintain a smaller body than when I'm in my 40s and 50s. And the reason for that is the muscle mass and the movement. So as we get older, we lose muscle mass, especially if you're not working out and we stop moving as much. So if we can kind of focus on these two things and maintaining our muscle mass and holding movement in our lives in a way that doesn't feel like a big struggle, we always walk to the grocery store, we park further away, we take the stairs. Those things actually do matter over time. And I really remember thinking like, oh my God, how much could this possibly be contributing? Like, this is like, what, five calories for me to take the stairs? Like, I'm, it's not worth it. I'm too lazy. I'm going to take the escalator. But then when I started reading these studies about me, I was like, oh man, I guess this stuff actually matters. And so actually incorporating movement and resistance training into your life is so important when it comes to maintaining your metabolism.
I appreciate this because I think oftentimes when we think about dieting, it's a lot about control, mastery of the body, hypervigilance of what you consume, hyperdedication to the gym. And it kind of the information can sometimes create a lot of pressures in our head to be in control of things that we don't have control over often. And so I did see that you dedicated a chapter to your own history with eating and disordered eating in, your, in college. Are you comfortable sharing what that looked like here? Because I think a lot yes. of women can relate. I'd always kind of been dieting throughout high school, just casually. Like I would say like, you know, when my friends would have two or three pieces of pizza, I would have one. Or if there was cake at birthdays, I would just say no. It wasn't really disordered. It was just kind of I thought this is how girls had to be to be thinner. Then when I got to college, because my parents weren't there, I felt like, oh my God, I can do whatever I want now. Nobody's going to be looking at me. Nobody's going to be, you know, checking to see if I'm exercising or eating. And I knew my parents wanted me to lose weight, which is why I never wanted them to know I was trying to lose weight. It was always like, it has to be in secret. I just want one day to be the weight they want me to be. And they're just going to be like, oh, what happened? I'm going to be like, oh, nothing. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just like this. Ha ha. Uh, so in college, I was like, okay, I'm going to take this really seriously. I started really counting calories, eating very little, like I'd say a thousand to a thousand two hundred calories a day, basically not eating any fats and then running on the treadmill, like trying to burn 300, 400 calories every time I ran on the treadmill. And I was like, okay, by the time I come back home, like I'm going to be so skinny. The punchline to the joke, not a very funny joke, but the punchline is that that year I gained 17 pounds, I think. I remember my parents were like, oh my God, the freshman 15, like what have you been eating at school, blah, blah, blah. And like the reason I gained all this weight is because I could stick to my diet for three or four days a week. And then basically something would happen. Like I would just be so hungry. I would be studying and I would open my drawer. My mom had got me, um, you know, those like single serve nut packs from Costco. It's like a big thing of nut packs and protein bars and whatever. And I would eat one protein bar and be like, okay, that's okay now. And then I'd have another protein bar. Next thing I know, I'd like blink and I'd eaten like six protein bars. And I was like, what just happened? Like, that's my entire next day's worth of calories. So I'd be like, okay, next day, like, I'm not going to eat breakfast and lunch. I'll just eat dinner. And I'd be so full at dinner. I'd get back home. I'd be like, oh, but like, then I'd eat six more protein bars. And I was like, what's going on? Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm not going to eat the whole next day. Or I'm going to run an extra hour on the treadmill. Like I would be on the treadmill at 1 a.m. running for like an hour, two hours to burn 800, 1,000 calories because I felt like I'd overeaten 1,000 calories. And so those behaviors, which if you're familiar with eating disorders, is bulimia and binge eating. Um, so it's binge eating. If you just do the binges, it starts to be classified as bulimia if you're also doing purging behaviors, which can be over-exercising or starving yourself the next day, doing a fast those behaviors just got worse and worse and worse as college went on. So the more I would diet, the worse the binges would get. The worse the binges would get, the more I would diet. And so this is the very common cycle we see with eating disorders. And this whole time, I didn't really think that I had an eating disorder because I was never skinny. Like, that's not me. And I was a psychology major, mind you. So like, I took a class on eating, like there was eating disorders mentioned in the class. And I still was like, oh, no, no, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not skinny enough to have an eating disorder. And so the only time I was like, okay, maybe this is a problem was when I was interviewing an eating disorder expert for our podcast back in like 2019. And the lady was saying like, yeah, people with eating disorders, a big uh, mental signature of an eating disorder is that they place all their self-worth in their weight. And they think everything in their life is a failure if they're not the correct weight. And I was like, oh, yes, this is me. I think I'm a massive failure no matter what I do. 
And the more I talked to her, the more I was like, wait, this is me. Wait, yes, this is me. And so that's when I was like, oh my God, wait, do I have an eating disorder? And so um, since then, I'm, I'm doing so, so, so much better. Like I would say, I don't think I have any eating disorder behaviors anymore. Thank God. It's still one of those things where it's like, you never really leave the mindset completely because I still struggle with not feeling guilty if I feel like I've overeaten. But the difference is I don't have binges anymore. And if I feel guilty for overeating, I don't cope with that guilt by not eating the next day. Like I can talk myself out of like, it's okay, people always overeat. It's like a normal thing to happen to someone. There's been so many things that I've used to treat my eating disorder. Like it's definitely been a thing where it's like, I'll do therapy for a bit and I think it gets better. Um, So it's kind of this ongoing cycle, but I'd say like the past year or two has been, even though it's been a very stressful time in my life, which usually would trigger my eating disorder, has been a very non-disordered eating period of my life, which I'm very thankful for. Congratulations. And I'm happy that this has turned around the way it has. There were very interesting things that were presented to me about eating disorders because, again, I'm a chubby-bodied girl. So for me to hear about anorexia, you think of these waif-thin televised Hollywood versions of anorexia. When you think about bulimia, you think about somebody putting a finger down their throat. You don't think about the laxatives, the over-exercising. But, Eddie, you shared a very personal interview with your own daughter who was dealing with eating disorders as well. And there was mention of orthorexia as being like the onset of it. Could you talk about orthorexia and, and the signs and the experiences of navigating that as a parent? The quick story is that my wife and I out of interest and also sort of following the trends over the years have tried all sorts of things. I mean, we've done everything from the the zone diet to Whole30, you know, which we joke, we called it Whole13 because we only lasted 13 days, not 30. Anyway, a lot of experimentation, which can be described as orthorexia. Ortho means straight, rexia refers to eating. So straight eating is sort of like, I just want to be healthy, but it starts to cross over the line. And one of our three children took it to the next level. Our clean eating, I think, you know, was interpreted by her with her particular psychology and her interest and participation in competitive athletics in college, where she ate less and less. And it just sort of like spiraled. She was off in school across the ocean. She uh, went off to... um, school in Scotland. So we were not seeing her on a regular basis. We live in Boston. And it, it got to the point where she was dangerously thin and needed medical intervention. And all of this, you know, happened along the time frame of me meeting Yuna, because they're the same age, and um, kind of wrestling with my daughter's anorexia and her health and how to parent her. And um, <laughs> one message for your listeners is, you know, just because my wife and I are doctors doesn't mean that we didn't kind of miss this completely until she was dangerously thin. My daughter, thankfully, is doing quite well now. Um, and, you know, just echoing what Una just said, the eating disorder is still present, but quieted in terms of how much it captivates her, her thinking and her energy. That was Dr. Eddie Phillips. You're listening to producer Catrice Claudio's conversation with Eddie and Yuna Jada. Their podcast and their book is Food We Need to Talk. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. In a moment, we'll bring it back to food and learn how we can nurture a positive relationship with food and the keys to eating well. Find a way to eat that feels easy to you and is still healthy. 
And that looks very different for different people. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Our guests this hour are Yuna Jada and Dr. Eddie Phillips, the team behind the podcast and the book, Food We Need to Talk. Earlier, Yuna and Eddie discussed the origins of diet culture, fat stigma, the myths around metabolism, and their own personal experiences with disordered eating. In so many ways, food is emotional. Catrice wraps up her time with Yuna and Eddie with some final takeaways about eating, including embracing your non-negotiables, whatever they might be, and how cooking for and eating with other people is one way to eat well. As a show about food, I want to bring it back to that, right? So how can we use all that we've discussed to better our day-to-day lives, especially when it comes to our relationship with food? When it comes to food, We don't have to really make it so complicated and focus on these crazy diets that we see online. The best thing you can do is find a way to eat that feels easy to you and is still healthy. And that looks very different for different people. Um, So Eddie talks about this sometimes. He says that he will ask his patients, like, what are your non-negotiables? So for Eddie, coffee, ice cream, like, he just is not going to give up coffee, ice cream. His life would be vastly diminished without his coffee, ice cream. For me, <laughs> for me, it's chocolate. Like, or when I'm on my period, like, I'm sorry, I don't care how much I care about my health. When I'm on my period, I will always get a peach bubble tea and a brownie at this place near my house. It's just like, that's my like monthly period ritual. Okay. That's just how it goes. And so <laughs> there are just certain things where it's like, I try to make eating well as easy as possible in the sense that like, I don't like to keep a lot of junk food in my house. Because personally, it's just very hard for me to portion control. And I do have friends that like they can have it in the house and they'll have it in the house for months and forget it's there. If I know we have pumpkin spice Oreos in the house, it is just a constant struggle for me. Like constantly I have to be like, I want them. No, I shouldn't. I want them. No, I shouldn't. I want them. No, I shouldn't. It's just like it makes my life really hard. But I don't want to say that I can never have pumpkin spice Oreos. So it's the type of thing where it's like when I want something good or a treat, I will go out and get it and have it and enjoy it and not feel bad about it. But at the same time, like the stuff I have in the house that's easy to reach for, that's low friction, is mostly whole foods, right? And so I think finding a way to create that um, way of eating that's as easy as possible without feeling restrictive and feeling nourishing is the key to eating well in the long term. So I would add that if you can look for the opportunities to share food with others, to cook, even if you don't know how to cook, guilty. I'm a really good sous chef for my wife. I can chop, but I'm not a great cook. But even if you could prepare any kind of dish for someone else, if you could do any kind of home cooking, you're going to be eating healthier and you're going to enjoy it more. Look to eat it with others. Look to savor your food. Try something new. Enjoy it. Don't, you know, get sucked into the, this This latest ingredient is now evil. And I think, you know, look at your health in a broader perspective, figure out what really matters to you. Along the way, you're going to eat. We're going to eat every day, hopefully. 
you're not meant to go hungry, you're not meant to be deprived, but you know, incorporate food into what really matters and what makes you who you are. Keep it real, keep it with other people, and we'd love to hear from your listeners if this is working for them. I have to say that there is a difference when reading this book. I know personally, it brought me back to the gym and my relationship was not, oh, I read yes! the book. Liz, I was like, no, I read the book. I'm going to go to the gym now. It was like, no, the gym has 20 minutes of my time. <laughs> you know, <Yes. laughs> The gym has 20 minutes and I'm leaving. Yes. And it, and it turned to 30. It turned into an hour. And so I know how I've been impacted by this book. I eat better fruits and vegetables now than I did. And I make time for that. I'm a cooking enthusiast. Yes. You've recently done events where you get to meet and talk with people who listen to your podcast and read your book. What are they telling you about how your work is impacting them? Wait, Catrice, that makes me so happy. I just have to say like the gym is just such a special place to me because I hated it for so much of my life. And it was like so tied to me to becoming smaller. And that's the only reason I went. And like truly the gym is what pulled me out of my eating disorder because when I discovered lifting weights, I was like, wow, like it's actually really cool to be stronger. And that was the first time I was like, wait, maybe I need to eat more. Wait, maybe I need to sleep enough. Wait, maybe I need to actually take care of my body if I want to be strong. And so like getting other people to go to the gym, if like they can at all feel any sort of that like self-empowerment that I felt at the gym just makes me so happy. Like it's so special to me. Um, Meeting our listeners. Yes, this was so cool. This happened for the first time this year. We do get messages a lot from our listeners. And like, I've met a few of them just out in the wild. They'll recognize me. And it was just amazing. I mean, I think to me, I felt like hearing their experiences of they felt accepted and not judged for their body in listening to our podcast that is about health and fitness was what stuck out to me the most. Because there's not many places on the internet or even in real life, I think, where you can be a person interested in health and fitness and it's okay for you to not be skinny. And so I think like it was just really cool that they felt that we had created this safe space and that it was a non-judgmental space because it honestly is really hard, I think, even for us to talk about this stuff and not sound judgmental, like especially because people can't see me and can't see that like I'm not skinny. I am a person in a bigger body. I think people often assume because it's a health and fitness podcast that I'm like some skinny white girl talking about more skinny white girl things. It's it's hard for people not to know that. And I think it was really cool that like it has come across. We do care about this so much and that we're not coming from this from a judgmental place and that we both have had this stuff personally impact both of our lives. Uh, one of my favorite um, responses from one of our listeners was something like, I just want to say that like I've been listening, really love the show. You guys are wonderful haven't changed anything, but I feel a lot better. <laughs> Meaning, you know, like just sort of like I'm giving myself some forgiveness. I'm giving myself some grace. I'm doing the best I can. I look at this as a megaphone for like a medical practice. I can only talk to so many patients a week, a year, or a career. This is an opportunity to talk to tens of thousands of people and hopefully give them the space, give them the grace, give them the chance to explore their own you know, sort of confidence and, and live their full lives. The empowerment that people will be left feeling when they read this book is the reason why we had to speak with you guys and let people know that this exists. So, Eddie, Yuna, Thank you so much for coming this season. Thank you so much for creating food we need to talk. And I would encourage anyone who feels discouraged about fitness and nutrition, give this one a shot. 
Thank you so much, Catrice. Thank you, Catrice. This was so fun. That was producer Catrice Claudio talking with Yuna Jada and Dr. Eddie Phillips. Together, they host the Food We Need to Talk podcast, and they are the authors of the book, Food We Need to Talk, the science-based, humor-laced last word on eating, diet, and making peace with your body. Learn more about the work they do at foodweneedtotalk.com and follow them on Instagram at foodweneedtotalk. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Catrice and Meg Dalton, Stephanie Stender, Tegan Engel, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. To keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on X. Catch this and past episodes of Seasoned covering everything from your favorite ice cream shops to cookbooks to holiday food, wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like the show, rate it. Give us all the stars. It helps other food lovers find us. Let's stay connected. Every month I feature recent episodes, recipes from cookbooks I love, and gardening tips from Charlie Nardozzi in our newsletter Full Plate. Go to ctpublic.org newsletters to sign up. You can see lots more recipes and ask a cooking question on our food site, ctpublic.org food. And you can always send the show an email at seasoned at ctpublic.org. I love reading your letters, so keep them coming. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.